Welcome to the 41st episode of our podcast series for advisors considering the independent space. Today's episode is Seven Things Advisors Need to Know About Succession Planning. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com, and on wealthmanagement.com, as well as iTunes and other resources. A recent article in Barron's cited some interesting yet alarming stats that I'd like to share. The average age of a Barron's Top 100 advisor is now 57, up from 52 just six short years ago. Fair enough, none of us are getting any younger. But here's the alarming part. According to a 2018 study from the Financial Planning Association and Janice Henderson, 73% of financial advisors do not have a written succession plan. And I've heard other studies which share even more dire numbers, with just 10% of advisors having an actual workable succession plan. Unfortunately, it's not surprising. Many advisors will say things like, I love my work and never see myself retiring, while others blame the fact that it's difficult to find the next gen to pass the business on to, and still more say that they don't even have a clue of where to begin. It's sad because quality wealth management businesses have real value, and that value must be protected. It's a topic that's equally important to advisors who are just exploring the independent space as well as those who are already independent. So I've asked our resident expert on succession planning, Lewis Diamond, to take over the mic and share seven important things that advisors need to know about the topic and give you advice on how to get started on building that plan today. Lewis, take it away. Thanks, Mindy. Succession planning is a critical topic, regardless of an advisor's age or channel of affiliation. The considerations and processes somewhat differ, though, depending upon whether an advisor sits as an employee of a brokerage firm or is already an independent business owner. That said, there are many overlaps, and I thought it would make sense to break this down into three parts. First, we'll take a deeper dive into some of the reasons why those numbers around succession planning are so startling. Next, I'll share seven key things about succession planning that will help to break down some of the barriers and hopefully make this process feel a little bit less overwhelming. And finally, I'll give you what I call my jumpstart list to really get you moving and give you defined tactics that you can start on right after this episode. So the stats that Mindy shared are pretty alarming. Certainly, we can all blame procrastination for not having a plan or that we're simply too busy. I certainly fall victim to this every day. But there's more to it. In my experience, there are four key reasons why advisors who are inherently planners on behalf of their clients get stuck in the mud when trying to solve for succession. Number one, seeding of control. To really solve for succession involves handing off many functions advisors enjoy or are accustomed to handling on their own. Things like investment management, business development, meeting with clients, and remaining the CEO or team lead. Depending upon the type of succession deal, whether it's an internal transfer or sunset program, if an employee of a brokerage firm, or an external sale, an advisor really needs to be comfortable 
giving up all or some of these things, and many are just not ready to do so. Secondly, economics. Regardless of the record valuations we are seeing in the independent space or the enhanced sunset programs available for employees of brokerage firms, it's clear that for many, retaining the maximum amount of cash flow for as long as possible and then selling at the last possible moment is the preferred path. Additionally, beginning to transfer or sell some equity to the next generation means reducing take-home pay for the duration of one's career. You can't have your cake and eat it too, but many do try. If it's all about the economics, then it is quite difficult for one to truly solve for succession until it may be too late. Thirdly, inertia. It's easy to discontinue business as usual, either because it's easier, more comfortable, or because your firm is just growing so rapidly. Solving for succession really means carving out time to work on the business instead of in it. The only way to overcome this is if solving for succession is a true priority. Fourth, finding the right person. Many sit back and wait for a mini-me, but the fact of the matter is most advisors are looking for a similar person and there is a limited supply, so competition for this individual can be quite fierce. If you aren't extremely proactive and realistic about what you're seeking, then the waiting game will certainly continue for a while. Now that we've got some background on why advisors put off the succession planning process, let's unpack the seven key things you need to know to really move forward. Number one, recruiting or acquiring into the successor role, harder than it seems, but can really be a home run if accomplished. Most advisors would prefer an internal succession plan as it's simpler, more efficient, requires the least amount of change for advisor and client, and allows for the senior advisor to retain control for as long as possible. The challenge is that if this is the only thing an advisor is considering, it can become limiting and a bit short-sighted. If there is not a viable internal option, then one must look externally to recruit into that role. The challenge here is that everyone is seeking a similar person, someone who is relatively young but experienced, can bring over some assets, and conducts business the right way. Given all the firms out there in teams, some larger than yours, that are looking to solve for succession, aggressive deals from brokerage firms, deep-pocketed private equity-backed RIAs, everyone is really gunning for the same individual and oftentimes come with more capital or a greater scale to lower prospective advisors. Many times we find that one specific person may not be the answer since it is unlikely you will find a true clone of yourself. Of course, though, if you do have the right individuals on your bench, then I do think rewarding them for their years of loyalty and hard work makes all the sense in the world and actually creates a pretty exciting corporate culture. The second thing we find is that internal succession plans are typically done at a significant discount to fair market value. If already an independent business owner, typically an internal buyer pays a 20 to 30% discount to fair market value. Additionally, internal folks typically pay out a retiring advisor over a period of three to seven years and do not come with significant cash down at closing, unlike their external counterparts. For employee teams, a firm sunset program is really a terrific way to monetize in place. However, the longer term payouts of the deals and even the valuation metrics fall below competitive recruiting deals and selling equity at long-term capital gains treatment as an independent. A trend too we are seeing is that the largest independent firms are growing larger and larger by the day. And you couple this with record valuations, 
and the prices are becoming far too expensive for a next generation advisor to buy into the business. An example is a $2.5 billion firm with a $50 million valuation. If this firm even sold 1% to a next generation advisor, that individual would have to come up with $500,000. The third key thing to be aware of is that there are many ways to monetize your business and solve for succession. To begin charting the right course for a specific advisor requires some real soul searching to decide what is driving the bus. Is it just about getting the best deal or are there other factors at play? Timing of the retirement and what sacrifices an advisor is willing to make in terms of relinquishing control. Additionally, an advisor must be honest with themselves about the reasonableness of solving for succession internally. The paths to monetize your life's work and solve for succession do differ a bit, whether you're an employee of a brokerage firm or are an existing independent business owner. We'll start first with an employee. There are four ways to really monetize. Number one is to take your firm's sunset program or retiring advisor program. Second is to what we call move once and monetize twice. That is to move to another firm, get a recruiting deal, perhaps on a shorter duration note, and then enter that firm's retiring advisor program. Third is to go independent with your team and create your own version of a sunset program, but be able to do so with significantly more flexibility with how and when you retire and also be able to benefit from long-term capital gains tax treatment. And fourth is to go independent and sell the business outright to one of the four different types of RIA buyers. We'll talk on this a little bit more in a bit, but they are the standalone or local RIAs, direct private equity investor, an aggregator or roll-up, or a platform acquirer. As an independent business owner, there are three ways to monetize your life's work and solve for succession. Number one is, of course, an internal succession buyout, using either the cash flow of your business to pay you out over a period of time, or by having the younger advisor or advisors take a bank loan. Second is selling a portion of the business or all of the business to a private equity firm or an external investor. And third is to merge or sell the firm to one of the four different types of buyers. If you are looking to sell external to an independent buyer, let's break down what these four types of buyers mean. So first is the standalone or local RIA. These firms tend to be somewhat smaller. They've done a couple of acquisitions before. They're definitely much more cultural plays. And it's very much about having one firm and one identity. Since these firms do a lesser number of deals, they do tend to be more strategic and fit really has to matter. These firms too, though, typically come with less deal-making experience and normally don't pay as much in evaluation or put as much money down as some of their counterparts. Second is a direct private equity investment. This is where a private equity firm is making a capital contribution directly into your business. So the business really stays intact, the brand, the investment approach, the culture, and even the team. But the private equity firm takes a majority control interest and buys out a significant stake of the founders or the retiring advisor's equity. Third is to sell or merge with an aggregator or roll-up. These are firms you read about all the time in the financial press, the firms that are doing many, many deals a year. Usually they are backed by a private equity firm or by significant external capital. And these firms are really professional deal makers. They typically can pay the most in a deal, put most of the purchase price down at closing, and they've really found efficiencies and scale in everything they're doing. 
from business development to financial planning and to investment management. The downside of an aggregator or roll-up is that you really do have to give up a significant amount of control because these firms have one way of doing things and they do it extremely well. And the fourth option, if you're selling your business or merging it with an external partner, is to join a platform acquirer. These firms are ones where you can sell your business and leverage their platform, their compliance, their operations, and even take chips off the table. But you and your team are really left to run the business as is. So maybe you can keep your brand, you can keep your investment approach, keep your client service model, and still have a lot of day-to-day control, but you're doing it with a little bit more scale and support behind you, and you've solved for succession in the process. All right, we're almost halfway through. Let's look at the fourth key item on the list. All firms are looking to acquire and recruit, but you really drive the bus. Your goals and must-haves should guide your process and not the other way around. Creating a list of must-haves or sacred cows is so important, and we cannot emphasize this enough. If an employee getting clear on items like comfort with operating in the independent space, risk tolerance, magnitude of control, and willingness to actually transition are critical items before embarking upon a due diligence process or even figuring out how to solve for succession. If already independent, the importance of retaining control over things like investment management, your company brand, management duties, and even your role after a deal tend to be the biggest areas. And without having clear guidance from yourself and your team before embarking upon succession planning, oftentimes the end result is not as favorable. Let's take a look at how two clients of ours solve for their succession plans while finding an external buyer for their business, but how their goals leading up to a transaction really steered the right decision on what type of buyer made sense for them. Firm one was an advisor who loved to manage his own portfolios, really wanted to stay involved in most value-add aspects of the business, and was sick of managing the middle and back office and did not feel confident his next generation having the requisite capital or really interest in stepping up to the plate and running the firm after he retired. In a case like this, the roll-up firms would have been a complete disaster since they wanted to standardize everything. But a platform acquirer was actually the ideal fit here because in the end, the advisor was able to solve for succession, get a very fair purchase price for his business, but still retain a decent amount of control after the deal was closed. Our second example was a business that loved meeting with their clients but knew that others had superior skill sets in areas like investment management, business development, and operations. This firm, too, was looking for the maximum amount of money up front to really de-risk the transaction and wanted a firm that was a national powerhouse. Here, they found Utopia in a roll-up firm. Fifth on our list, succession planning leads to an inflection point in the business. A succession planning exercise can be the perfect opportunity to reassess whether for your client's benefit, your legacy, and your team, that you are in fact in the right place. Next generation advisors on your team, though, are oftentimes worried about getting tied up for five years through the firm's retiring advisor programs. So you must balance your own succession planning needs with the motivations, goals, and even having a crystal ball over the next five years on behalf of your team. And if there's not proper communication around an older advisor's departure, including when they are going to retire and how they will step down in responsibilities, 
then an advisor does risk losing his team and ultimately his succession plan. Point six, Wirehouse Sunset programs are really the new retention deals. After the financial crisis, many advisors took on forgivable notes when their firm was acquired by another firm. Many have rumored about having these retention deals come back as the wirehouses have lost a number of advisors. But instead of giving checks to everyone, the firms have really, in a smart manner, juiced up the sunset programs to lock in advisors. These sunset programs not only tie up or bind a retiring advisor to the firm during the duration of the deal, but they also agree to a garden leave or a strict non-compete. But probably more importantly, the deals bind most advisors to their firm, most next generation advisors for five to seven years during the time in which they're buying out the advisor, plus usually a period of time after that. And finally, point number seven, structure is so much more important than price, although you do have some control over a purchase price. Valuations today are fairly standardized across buyers. For instance, a $200 million RIA should sell for four to six times earnings. And that same size employee team can expect probably 200 to 250% of trailing 12 if selecting their firm's sunset program. That said, competition for the business can often be the biggest determinant of the ultimate purchase price. Or put another way, multiple bids increases leverage. This is why sunset deals are often done at a discount to fair market value, since an advisor is locked in to the price and terms their firm dictates, and there's really only one bid for the business. Same goes for existing RIAs, who only accept one bid or jump at the first good offer that they find. Multiple offers really drives price, and it provides you with additional leverage to get every point in the deal that's going to match up with your goals. Certain qualitative factors too, like client demographics, a history of sustained organic growth, compliance history, a systematic or institutionalized investment approach, and depth of your team play an important role and ultimately drive enterprise value in which end of the multiple scale one may fall. I always caution to manage the business as if you're selling tomorrow. So even if you're 30 years old and have 30 to 40 years left to work, always manage around the areas that you believe a buyer will ultimately find important. And if one day you do decide to sell, your business will be in the best possible place. And finally, the amount of cash up front, timing of payments, earnouts, notes payable are all critical elements in a deal structure and also are very important for a seller or someone solving for succession planning to manage their risk and also keep in mind the time value of money. So balancing the most aggressive deal or the highest purchase price with the most friendly deal terms is critically important. For example, a $3 million revenue business can sell for 200 to 250% in a wirehouse sunset program. But getting a payout over five years is less advantageous than taking a lesser valuation, say 200%, and a lump sum payment up front, and then the balance paid out over two years. And now into the home stretch. Let's get to the jumpstart list or real tactics you can use to get started on your succession planning right after you listen to this episode. Having a better understanding of what you need to be aware of and dispelling some common myths paves the way to jumpstart the planning process. First and foremost, it is important to realize that it's never too early to begin solving for succession. A couple of areas you can figure out right now are items like 
a contingency buy and sell agreement. So these agreements are non-binding and you never have to act on it. But if you did get hit by the proverbial bus, God forbid, then at least your estate and your family and your clients do have a way to have some continuity. Secondly, succession planning can be a real recruiting and acquisition tool. Most young advisors are looking for inorganic growth opportunities or an opportunity to take on the book of a retiring advisor. So being clear when trying to compete to bring on the right next generation can be a home run, as long as you are very clear with interested individuals with what your realistic timeline is. Next, to really maximize enterprise value, I would leave a three to five year runway before you want to retire if you are considering an external sale. This time period allows for a buyer to be comfortable with the transition of the business. So they're de-risking the transition in their eyes. And it also gives you enough time so you can collect maximum cash flow on your business and also stay in control for as long as possible. A real win-win. And fourth, succession planning is truly an iterative process. It's not something to rush. And I would write your succession plan in pencil because it's going to change a lot as elements of your firm change you bring in new people, maybe even your motivations and goals also are varying over time. So to get started, you really need to have a thoughtful conversation with yourself. Ask yourself questions like, how important is it for me to actually solve for succession? The first step is really admitting you have a problem. Get clarity on your goals for succession. I would suggest working with a coach or a consultant or even a therapist if you hit a wall on your own. An internal analysis to see if there are any viable candidates in your firm is also a something we would recommend. And also if they have the requisite capital or appetite to be able to buy you out. And if they really do want to be the next generation CEOs and COOs of your organization. And finally, if deciding to sell external, begin strategically, since you will certainly be the bell of the ball and have many different people interested. But going back to the different types of buyers and getting clear in what your motivations are, you should be crystal clear about what you're willing to give up in terms of control, what it is that's most important to you in terms of a deal structure and really just serving the rest of your career, and also what's going to be best for your clients. If you don't tackle this part strategically, it can become a full-time job and you kind of be stuck in the mud while you're looking for the perfect situation. Preparing for the future means putting a plan in place, not just for retirement, but also for any unforeseen life events that can disrupt the business. That's why putting a plan in place will give you a safety net at the ready should you need one. Clients also begin asking questions about succession planning when they've seen a close family or friend leave the business, and it gives them comfort in the continuity of your team, especially as most clients leave an advisor after a death in the family having that next generation in place that the next generation of a client's family is comfortable with will also make it so that your business is truly future-proof. I also suggest that you visit our website for links to articles on succession that may help guide your next steps. And of course, if you need advice, guidance, or even just to bounce a couple ideas off of us, we are more than reachable at 908-879-1002. And we're always happy to help and handle everything with complete discretion and care. Many thanks to Lewis Diamond for sharing actionable information on succession and to our listeners who've asked for more information on the topic. 
I hope it was helpful to answer some of your questions. In our next episode, Margaret Deccant of the $2.5 billion independent firm Six Meridian will be joining me. In 2016, she left Morgan Stanley with her team during a time when going independent wasn't quite as mainstream as it is today. And she and her team built the firm on their own without leveraging the expertise of consultants or service providers. She's got a remarkable story to tell, and I hope you'll join us. Until then, I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com, and click on the tools and resources link for valuable content. And if you're not already a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the blog link to browse recent articles. Feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached at 908-879-1002 or by email at mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. Thank you for listening. I also want to thank wealthmanagement.com for sharing this podcast with their viewers and subscribers. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence.